Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hi, folks. Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds and host of the Petro Nerds Podcast. Welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. It is, uh, this is actually part two. This is a double header. So this is, um, we just recorded episode 43 this morning with uh, Tellurian's uh, head of strategy, Renee Perong. And we are going to continue that episode on today. So I'm just going to introduce that a little bit because we broke it into because it was it was a, a quite lengthy and really, really great discussion. Um, so this is the second part of the double header. This is part two. Um, it is still Monday, April 4th, 2022. When we recorded this episode in the morning, Oil prices, WTI was 101.80, Brent was 106.36, and Nat Gas, uh, Henry Hub was 580. Um, at the time, TTF or, or um, Dutch uh, oil prices, uh, or I'm sorry, Dutch natural gas prices in Europe, um, the European benchmark for Nat Gas prices was about 36 bucks. So that's the timestamp, um, April 4th, uh, 2022. That was episode 43 that record. This is episode 44. Um, and I do have the benefit of, of given that I know what we're talking about because I'm introducing the, the episode, is that a couple things that Renee and I really get into, and that's that really getting into China and this dialogue on China. And we don't uh, completely agree on on LNG and why exactly China is importing. Uh, we saw these uh, this rise in LNG, which is great. I think it's a really good conversation for the listeners for you to hear some different perspectives. And furthermore, I think there's, um, we also, beyond, beyond China, we talk about the European energy crisis. Um, and the benefit of today already happening is that two things happened today. Um, and that's that, you know, we didn't talk in the last episode about the the lockdowns in taking place in China. So I do think something pulling down oil prices in addition to the SPR release, um, which was big, but I, I don't believe the SPR releases is, is helping the market quite as much as, as folks think it is. Um, I really do. I think the the lockdowns in, in China um, are very, very serious. I mean, you actually have um, parents being, uh, children being removed from their parents in Shanghai and other places are reportedly. Um, so that's a little, that's quite scary um, and a big problem. But in addition to this conversation um, that we're talking about China and we're talking about the European energy crisis. So I do want to, I'm going to go ahead and add this that, um, so, and, and Veris came out with their newsfeed this evening and, and folks probably saw the new fortress um, facility of the fast LNG project off of Louisiana. So looking to rapidly accelerate uh, development of LNG and, and add more in, in the Gulf Coast. I think to me, this is an example of our previous conversation I had with Renee that the market is going to move relatively fast on this. We'll see if this is, you know, folks are actually capable and they can get all this, the equipment and supplies given the supply chain bottlenecks that we are seeing. Um, however, I would also like to add is that CNUC is looking to sell their North Sea assets. So they got this when they bought Nexen, the Canadian uh, Canadian company, and those assets. Now, they're looking to sell that for $3 billion. I think this is very interesting because what Renee, Renee and I talk about within this podcast is uh, is China's energy policy, what they're doing right now, and food and energy security. And what I, I get into a little bit of their, their current dual circulation strategy, which is really about... Um, sort of, you know, doubling down on what's on their domestic economy and working on their exports, but being very careful on who they're actually trading with. And I think that the fact that China CNOC, the Chinese National Offshore Oil Company is what CNOC stands for. And the fact that they're looking to sell assets and they, they're talking about um, looking towards... So, I believe Reuters had talked to someone within China and said that part of that those sale was getting out of Western assets and looking more toward Guyana and Uganda. Now, this is really serious because this this is what I'm sort of talking about in the podcast and alluding to is that China is looking to really sort of decouple itself in many ways from the West. I think if you were listening to CNBC World tonight or Bloomberg tonight, you were hearing things about Evergrande. You're hearing things about um, you're hearing things about this continual and st- strong relationship with China and Russia, which is something we talk about in this podcast, and I think is really really serious. So when you see that CNUC is looking to sell assets, and that you know the folks in China are reporting that they are looking at Guyana and Uganda, you're talking about. You're talking about Africa and you're talking about Brazil, places that China has a lot of influence and places that this is not under the under the realm of, of Western um, Western rules. So I just think that's really important to sort of um, encapsulate this. So with that, without further ado, uh, 
Renee is going to start talking in just a second and she's going to continue her conversation from last week that we had. And this is really going to be a conversation on, on China and the European energy crisis. So thank you guys so much for listening. Um, and really hope you, uh, really hope you enjoy it and talk soon. Bye. Yeah, two and billion are, people out of poverty. Yeah, no, and those are all all excellent points, and and it gets us to to pivot um, into our. We can close on this on the final topic of China, um, but I really I think it's really important that people realize too is that, and I I I will beat this drum um, of you know not calling them fossil fossil fuels and calling them crude oil, natural gas, and coal, and and also beat the drum of uh, U.S. oil and gas producers and folks in the energy space in general, CEOs of public companies have not done a good job of defending what they do in this industry. They have completely leaned in and pandered to the ESG push that is uh, utter crap um, when it when we're talking about ESG and we're talking about human lives and we're talking about social and governance. Um, we're at focusing on scope one and scope two emissions when you're not focusing on the social and the governance aspect. You don't have a diverse board. You don't even, um, I mean, not even just a diverse board, but actually talking about the human piece. I mean, the the human capital piece of where are your investments? I mean, look at the portfolios of these companies and where their investments are at. And um, the issue thing is, is just hugely important to me, when we're, especially when we're talking about China. And there is a single country in this whole thing um, that stands to gain a lot, is gaining. I mean, uh, China has probably profited the most um, from this war in Ukraine. And I, I don't say that lightly, folks. You guys can pull up the actual data of the there. You can look at the imports uh, on a dollar on on a dollar basis of China's imports and their inflation in the month of February. And you can see also what they're pulling in from Russia. Their imports from Russia skyrocketed in the month of February. Again, the war started on February 24th. The the their decree or their their statement that they put out together that was uh, on Russia and China that was February that was February 4th. The war started on February 24th. Um, Imports surged during the month of February, um, and their inflation came down, and that means that they basically were getting a discount already in the month of February for these goods. Um, the day, the first day of the war, they said they're going to continue to increase grain imports from from Russia. Um, and Renee's point on this energy security is huge. I take a little bit of different perspective, and that's because I've dug into you know the 14th five-year plan and a lot of Chinese documents and text and food and energy security. It's one of their like six pillars that they put out in actually during 2020, which is interesting. Um, so they took a big pivot on their dual circulation strategy um, of, of beefing up the domestic consumption side of the business and also, or consumption side of the, the country and then exporting products. And the food and energy security piece is interesting because they, they dealt with, you know, firsthand this, the energy security problem because of the things I was pointing out. Um, and you're well aware of, of not, of, they have a lot of hydropower. Um, China has more renewable power than actually most, uh, most country in the world. I mean, they have a ton of solar and wind power that's not efficient. Um, and so if you, just a couple of recent podcasts I listened to that were fantastic of all their recent policies that they've done. So this is very interesting on, a, and on the energy security. So if you're on the renewable side and you're getting really excited about seeing all the wind and solar being installed in China, you need to be very careful with that um, because it is it is one to build out their their business, the, the wind and solar business. Um, and they do have a lot of it. So back to what I was just saying. So they have a ton of wind and solar. They're building it out. They're exporting it. So most of it's built in the province of Xinjiang, um, which is uh, you know riddled with human rights abuses and internment camps and forced labor and re-education camps between one and three million Uyghur Muslims. Um, and we do know that most of the polysilicon, most of the solar panels being made in China are are being made um, in the province of Xinjiang, likely from forced labor, which is a huge reason why the costs are so ridiculously low um, and why they've been able to flood the market in the last few years, um, in addition to stealing the technology from uh, Germany and then building it up from 2017 onward. There's all very clear dots and correlations to that. Um, so that was flooding the market. And one country that stands to gain the most um, from Europe reducing their imports of coal or, or reducing their imports, sorry, of, of coal and natural gas, but largely of natural gas and really doubling down on the energy transition on wind and solar, China stands to import or gain the most. And I think it was Bloomberg uh, Green put out that it was 15%, a 15% increase just this year, um, I think, in, in imports from China for solar. Um, and I think that's a significant reality of that. You know, China is benefiting from the imports. They're getting huge discounts on coal, grain, um, and and oil from from Russia. And this the food and energy security thing is really important because um, so energy security. I think last year when the coal production 
when, I mean, when we had this, the big issue with coal, right, where they didn't have enough coal and everybody said, OK, well, they had dropped their imports from Australia. So when Australia um, asked about the origins of the COVID virus, uh, they literally they banned imports of, of coal from Australia and, and wine. Um, and that wasn't a ton, but it was about 12 percent. And they were also declining output from mines not because of environmental standards necessarily. It was because they had a lot of mines and mine accidents. And so they had closed a lot of these smaller mines. And then they had the shortage of electricity and power. You had cities without power for months in the fall of last year. And so they ramped up coal production like crazy. And part of the, you know, they also emphasize supply chains a lot in their reports. So it's this redundancy. And so when we think about food and energy security, it's really about creating redundancy. And we think about energy in China. When you, you're adding all these renewables, they're, they're, they have a mandate now to produce more coal than they need. So all the domestic coal output. So they're, they're ramping up coal production, like you said, like crazy. So they will be supplying their own coal. They are a coal powerhouse. Uh, lo and behold, they produce a massive amount of coal and have a lot of reserves in the province of Xinjiang. They also have a lot of oil and natural gas there as well. Um, so producing all this stuff. And then they're, when they build out their energy right now, they're you hear on the renewable side and the energy transition side, a lot of people are talking about this massive build out of wind and solar. And they're doing this in tandem with coal. So they're building out excess of coal-fired power generation capacity with the wind and solar. Um, and they are admitting that it's not it's not cost-effective at all, um, which tells you something. The, the intermittency of the wind and solar has to have the coal to back it up. It's not being backed up by natural gas. Um, there's a whole different reason for that. It's not being backed up by natural gas because they don't have the natural gas. So they're backing it up with coal. So this is not about uh, reducing emissions. This is about energy security. This is about redundancy in the system. And they want to make sure that they have this electricity um, to have redundancy in supply chains. I think this is a little, I, I, I would argue that it's, yes, they want quality of life and well-being for their people, but there's 600 million people in, in rural China that, you know, I don't think have access to, to stable power supplies necessarily. Um, so, but all that being stable, you need you need power to keep people happy. So you right now you literally have a mandate for uh, building redundancy and power, renewable. So you have lots of wind, lots of solar being built out in tandem with coal. So we're seeing a surge in all that. And the more when you're wind using the wind and solar, you're not using the coal. So you get to build up that extra, you know, that little bumper of, of extra coal supplies. And so that is a benefit when you're building those out in tandem together. And I think they've also recognized the cost of um, the, the one, there's a cost of intermittency and there's cost of transmission. So you're building out the wind and solar close, and then you have to, the building out uh, the transmission side for renewables is very expensive. Um, and so they're sort of eating the cost in, in this in a lot of ways on to both build out the sector, I think, to build out the renewable sector in China um, so they can continue to export and it's a profitable sector and they want that to be very prosperous, um, but also because it's this is an energy security space. Um, so there's there, it's, it's multifold. There's a lot going on here. Um, we can't obviously probably completely digest that. But there's a reason I think you and I have talked about, and, and I want you to hone in on is the natural gas imports. So we've seen natural gas imports for China surge. Um, and I think partly that's because uh, they were complying with the trade agreement. They were trying to comply with previous trade agreements under Trump. Um, and those were dominated in dollars, not in volumes. Um, so they did have to ramp up the imports for natural gas to sort of try to comply with some of those trade agreements. Um, and they were very short term. I mean, it's like, I, I think they're, they're using natural gas to heat homes. I don't think they're using it to power. Um, and so so it's it's to me it's a little bit of it's available the prices were right we can get it we're stockpiling things like that as opposed to really integrating this into our grid um, and I know that was a lot but uh, I you can handle it so uh, <laughs> so I, I love you know feel free to take what you want there and, and all right <laughs> so I guess first um, you know here's a, a fun fact. Um, we looked at Chinese um, renewable capacity, I think it was about a year ago. And one surprising thing we saw from the data was the utilization rate of Chinese wind and solar was far lower than the global average. And we Absolutely. figured out that the part of the reason was because of lack of transmission capacity, right? So yeah, you're right. You have to distinguish between generation and transmission. You can't have one without the other. That uh, goes for the US and Europe as well, by the way. Um, but uh, we've definitely seen that within the data in China. So that's one thing. Um, I think I would also say I, I disagree with you a little bit on the trade tariffs issue. Um, Chinese demand for LNG has, has been insatiable and they're willing to take it from wherever. Um, and so- But only recently, what's, what's the numbers? So there, there so, is- 
2020, they were 30 BCF. 2019, they were 30 BCF a day market, right? They produce about 15 BCF a day. They were importing about 15 BCF a day. And that's edged up in the last two years by a few BCF a day, right? Well, I'll put it this way. If they could produce all the gas themselves, they absolutely would, right? But to your point, they have to import it. So last year, uh, they imported about 80 million tons of LNG. Again, excuse me, I think in million tons, and I'm not great at dividing by seven in my head. No, but Um, my point is is that if we're exporting, our export capacity is, is pushing 13 BCF a day. And that they're importing a little bit more than that. But what they import and their whole market, their whole market is is just double of our export capacity. So we consume about 80 BCF a day in the US. And China in the globe, in the mass of the biggest energy consumer in the world, the second largest economy in the world is a drop in the bucket on natural gas because they don't produce it. And so I really think people have to be careful about when you see this, uh, this surge and I do think it is a surge, like the it's it is an insatiable appetite, but it's it's backed by these things that we've been talking about: the food and energy security, the the recent volatility they've had, supply chain issues. That the surge is not necessarily. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't. I don't think China will continue to expose themselves to geopolitical volatility by importing LNG as long as they can. They will, um, but I don't think they want to be exposed. So that surge, I don't think, is a is a. Tr- is a long-term trend that they're saying, hey, we want global LNG from Western democratic countries. I don't think that's a, uh, I truthfully don't think that's a long-term trend. So that surge, I'm curious that you guys see that surge and it's an insatiable appetite. What do you, where do you think about what, what's driving the surge? Is it the near-term stuff and, and how are they using it? Like the, from the power, it doesn't seem to be like they're using it very much from the power side. It does seem the heating home side, which would help offset coal to, I mean, people still use coal in heating homes in, in yep. massive amount of China. So, I mean, that would help there, would help from a pollution standpoint significantly as well. Okay. So yes, let's talk about the demand side first, and then we'll talk about contracting and, and supply and where they're, they're getting their LNG from. So the surge of LNG demand in China really started in earnest in sort of winter 2017, um, when the government mandates to convert a lot of homes from consuming coal to cleaner fuels, whether that's electricity or gas, started coming into effect. And um, given the lack of available resources at that time, they pulled hard on LNG imports to switch about 7 million homes per year in just northern China alone from coal to natural gas um, for primarily for blue skies and human health reasons, right? Um, you know, we used to burn coal in our houses uh, in the UK. Uh, remember uh, the chimney sweeps in Mary Poppins? That, that was why. Um, so, you know, China has been, has been on a, embarking on a plan to switch from coal to cleaner fuels, primarily gas. So about 7 million homes a year. Um, so a lot of the demand is coming from the residential, commercial, and also the industrial sector. We can't ignore the fact that the industrial sector is one of the primary consumers of LNG. Um, but to your point, it really is not today a huge part of their power sector. Coal uh, and renewables, rep- coal in particular, to a lesser extent, renewables, including hydro, represent the majority of their power grid. That's, to your point, an issue with energy security. They are looking to build uh, more CCGT and more uh, gas-fired turbines close to LNG terminals on the coast, again, as sort of a blue skies campaign. Um, but that is not the primary demand pull for LNG in China. Um, and that's also not, it's not a, it, it, I wouldn't just say it's, it's actually not big in their, in their 14th five-year plan, building out, uh, building out gas-fired power generation is not a big component of that plan. It's not even, it's, it's kind of a, a footnote if, it, if that. Yeah. I, I also think you have to sort of remember how, I mean, it's obviously China is a huge country, right? So what's true in one, one region is not necessarily true in the other. A lot of the uh, gas demand is happening at the coast because that's where Absolutely. the more affluent regions are. And those regions are willing to pay a little bit more for LNG or for imported uh, for imported gas to, to clean their air, right? Um, so, okay, so that's the demand side of things. It's mostly ResCom, it's mostly industrial, it's to a lesser extent uh, gas in the power sector, 
But on a annual growth perspective, gas demand for power is growing and also transportation. Um, LNG and trucking is a, is a small wedge, but a growing wedge um, in urban areas, primarily in northern China for demand. So um, and, and also it's important to keep in mind the scale of how big China is. Right. So um, for 40 BCM or basically four BCF a day of uh, switching from coal to gas, that's equivalent to basically the entire size of driftwood LNG. So 27 uh, million tons. Um, it's it, These are big numbers. So even if you have a small change in, in coal to gas, it's a big number for LNG, right? So I'm not saying that we will necessarily have a 1% switch, um, but even if you have a small one, these are big numbers, right? Yeah. And they're um, big, they're, that's the point. They're, they're big and they're especially big because they're coming from a low base as well. Exactly. Um, and the other thing is, so if we're consume, if, if China is importing about 80 million tons of LNG today, and that has been growing at a very high rate, I can't remember the actual growth rate in my head right now over the last five years, but it's growing at a, I think, double digit perspective. Um, they also are trying to bring more gas in via the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline, and the Power of Siberia 1 pipeline is slowly ramping up. And both of those pipelines take gas from Gazprom um, via sort of the, the northern region where most of the demand, primarily for home heating because it's a colder climate, um, that's where most of the demand comes from. So even if you did have the full 50 BCM or 5 BCF a day, uh, Power of Siberia to pipeline come online in the next five years, which in my opinion is probably a pretty aggressive timescale given the fact that it took at least 10 years to build Power of Siberia 1, um, you still have a substantial amount of LNG demand pull um, from, from all of those sectors that I just mentioned. So, you know, power is important, but it's definitely not the only driver. And then I guess finally, um, so uh, your point about, uh, getting LNG from Western democracies, I take your point. However, um, China over the last year and really over the last six months has been on a spending spree, tying up most of their new LNG contracts, from U.S. LNG projects in particular. And that is a function of, you know, one, lack of other alternatives. Um, so, you know, prior to this crisis, there were only three countries in the world that could supply, uh, you know, low-cost gas and LNG at scale, and that is Qatar, Russia, and the United States, okay? So with the perspective from Russia, you've had basically 70 million tons of planned liquefaction capacity wiped off uh, wiped off the map just from lack of funding. They don't have access to Western technology. Those projects are never coming online. Um, you have Baltic LNG and Arctic LNG, two, uh, two projects that are currently under construction. Uh, the former Baltic LNG, I don't think will ever come online. Arctic LNG, two, it's a toss up and it will probably be delayed. And both of them will be uh, in a much more precarious position, given the sanctions and lack of access to Western technology for equipment. So uh, that's a bit of a tangent. But basically, Russia is is no longer one of the big three in terms of incremental LNG supply that can come to the market. OK, and then you have Qatar, which is currently building its expansion of about, you know, I think a little bit more than 30 million tons. And that's under construction. And that's that will come to the market. And that's desperately needed by the market. So really, if you're China and you're looking around, where else am I going to get the LNG that I need to, you know, clean my air and, uh, you know, meet the gas demand that I have committed to growing over the next few decades? Um, I'm not going to be getting as much from Australia. There's really not any new projects that are coming out of Australia anyways. Um, your only options are really the United States. Um, and they have indeed committed to... Uh, substantial amount of new contracts, new long-term contracts, because they understand the need for new liquefaction capacity. The United States is a low-cost provider, and it's one of the places that they know they can tie up those volumes and get for the long term. And then finally, I would also argue that if you think of the global LNG market as a giant bathtub, and there's a lot of different spigots and there's a lot of different drains, um, we've seen that, you know, for instance, with the tariffs um, and sort of the trade war under the Trump administration, um, even though China said that it didn't want uh, 
you know, US LNG, they still managed to get it from other places, right? So you have to think about this on a total balances perspective. And there, I, I am convinced that their demand will continue to grow. Um, they have indicated a willingness to buy it from US projects. And ultimately, even if there are some sort of, uh, you know, trade spats, um, the LNG will flow to where it's needed. And, you know, the markets will clear. So as we've seen that happens. Yeah, in the past. I mean, that, that's all great explanations. I have, uh, I mean, I know we need to close this podcast. And we'll probably have to break this into two now because it's, it's went long, but. Um, yeah, we haven't I have even gotten to Europe and that's the like, um, really crazy stuff these I mean, days. well, we've been, t- we've been talking, we've been talking about Europe in context of the, the, the actual volumes needed to go or the moving around the volumes. But the China side is, China's opportunistic in everything that they do. There's a single transaction or, um, you know, increasing volumes of LNG from the U.S. is a really great way to, one, I do think it was it, volumes increasing, contracted or not contracted, is a part of the of trade compliance that they were doing. Um, to, and they need it. I don't believe, I mean, yes, Blue Skies campaign, everything. It's an additional source of energy and they're going to get it and they can still get it. Um, so they'll get it from anywhere. And yes, they can get it from the U.S. will tie it up. That also puts the U.S. in a really precarious position when they want to put sanction, if they want to sanction uh, China in the future, that they're selling to China. And China knows exactly that. That's how they work with every single country is they tie themselves up economically to where it's very, it's harder to to disentangle themselves. So if you're China, you want to, you would absolutely tangle yourself up on the LNG front um, in the U.S. so that the U.S. is believes that they're beholden to you and they won't find a market. Um, it is not smart, I think, for uh, LNG produce for LNG exporters to get tied down on exclusive contracts with with China because I think that uh, the as we're seeing with Russia and as we've seen the commentary about these fears around China, there's a lot of tying of that in together. I also think that any, I mean, it's a little bit the the. The naiveness on Russia and China is prominent in the market. So, no, I mean, people always say we hear about it on on the market now is that oh they'll go the China Taiwan stuff. That that's not where I'm going with this at all. But the relationship and tie between Russia and China is extremely strong, and the energy and food security thing is really real. And those are not those have come into tandem over the last few years together. Um, this didn't the, the war wasn't planned overnight. It wasn't these things weren't devised overnight. They didn't construct their their agreements to with each other overnight. And so yes, it's taken forever on the power of Siberia. We don't know the terms of it. We don't actually know how much China is paying. Um, but I think China is able to give uh, Russia, they're able to front load them uh, money. I mean, they're explaining, you have Chinese professors on TV, on CNBC World in the evenings. And when they talk about, you know, what, what about China's investments in Russia? And they say, look, this is humanitarian. I mean, we are literally providing humanitarian good by continuing to transact with Russia and making sure their people have food and making sure this is a humanitarian good. That's literally how Chinese professors are explaining, you know, why they're continuing to work with China or why they're continuing to work with Russia. Um, so they're getting cheap goods. And so when you think about it, and a lot of the investment is when you look at the five-year plan and other documents is on the northern border, right? So Russia and China in that northern border region uh, where they can move both people and and um, flows of energy. Um, but if they're not, if Russia's not exporting, you know, if, they're, if their uh, Arctic LNG export facilities are, you know, curbed and they're not exporting abroad to other people, they're going to have one market to export that to. Um, and that's going to be both pipe and LNG to China. So yeah, China, of course, I just I wouldn't read into anything China does from a global LNG perspective into what they will do in the future or an indication of what they're doing at home from an environmental perspective or a people perspective is it is a it should be viewed from a relatively opportunistic lens. And they also are going every bit of LNG that is not exported out of Russia to the extent that they have the capacity and uh, money and ability to actually produce it at home and it doesn't decline, all of that will be going to China, all of it at a discount. And so all those LNG import facilities and everything on the coast um, are going to see a lot of, likely we'll see increased volumes of Russian gas. And Russia has made it a clear pivot of the last several years to pivot to Asia. And we're not seeing, I mean, we're seeing India continue to buy crude oil at a discount um, from from Russia as well. So, I mean, lots of countries within Asia are seeing this, the way they've been tied into both China and Russia and, and that they're sort of in this situation. So I would say, I, 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 
caveat my comment about not buying it from Western democratic countries. I, I just think it's a near-term opportunistic thing. It makes it makes total sense when you do it. But the fact that we aren't sort of viewing uh, the Chinese political regime the same way we should be, uh, the, the way they run their country from a domestic policy to foreign policy agenda, uh, it, it's, it's more similar to Russia than people realize from a, I'm not saying it's, they're the same autocratic styles, very different. It's a huge economy, but I think we have to be very, very careful about forecasting their demands, nature and structure, um, off of history. Um, cause it's just not, uh, from a, from an energy standpoint and they tend to, you know, throw spaghetti on the wall, see what sticks. And from an energy perspective, it's always been all in it's everything. All they literally have the, all of the above strategy and they want all the energy they can and they want all the redundancy. And LNG is a, a natural gas is a huge component of that. Um, I think they've really struggled to produce natural gas at home, um, from they have it, um, uh, but actually struggling to produce it takes a lot of work and innovation and technology and ingenuity on the shale side and the unconventional side. Um, they do have a lot of it. Again, they have a lot of oil, gas, coal, and, and just rich in natural resources in the northern parts of their country in the province of Xinjiang. Um, and so there's just a, there's a lot going on. I think, uh, you know, we, we can sort of table that, but the, there's a lot going on in that space. Um, they, the fact that they have increased LNG is, yes, they've done it, but but they're, they're such a drop in the bucket um, for what they should be for the size of their country. Um, so if they were really trying to green up their country, if they were really trying to do it, they would have doubled down on natural gas a long time ago. And then the fact that they didn't is simply because they have the coal um, and it is about uh, opening themselves up geopolitically. There's a lot of risk to those uh, to bringing that in. So if you think about where they can get it from a secure standpoint, um, and yeah, and it's, it's still, I think it's still relatively globally, we're talking about relatively smaller volumes um, from, now I'm not saying it's, it's huge for the five BCF a day, whatever it is, you know, a few BCF a day here is, is meaningful, but it's relatively small volumes in the grand scheme of things. Um, with that, for China, I, think, I will say yes, for China, yes, small in the grand scheme of China, large in the grand scheme of world LNG balances. Uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and with that, uh, it just I depends think, on which um, hat you're on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, with that, you know, I think we've we've beaten the horse on China. Um, there's a lot. There's a lot to we could continue talking about China for a long time. Um, I think on the you know to close, and I'm going to I am going to break this up into into two podcasts. But I think if you you know, the, the European side and the European crisis, and we we talked about this to the extent that we were we were talking about uh, how the how the uh, original crisis sort of evolved, right, from the nature of the winter in Asia um, and and the spring um, in in Europe and the drawdown, and we were talking about supply and demand and where it was coming from. But I think right now, um, I think the last thing to to actually qualify to quantify the volumes, um, and I would try to. I mean, we were talking about the you know the fifteen BCM and then the fifty BCM and. The ability for, I think, the ability for Europe to actually import liquefied natural gas. Um, obviously, everyone's talking about it now. Everybody, every country in Europe wants this natural gas immediately, and they want to secure it for the future. Um, we have countries that have historically actually built out the facilities. I mean, if you, if you look at a map, you can find this online and you can Google it. There are a lot of LNG import facilities within within Europe, um, countries that were ahead of the curve were Spain. Um, Poland has built out a lot of liquefied natural gas import facilities. But I think, um, you know, you and I have talked about this previously. The ability sort of short term, the the floating vessels is an interesting concept to me of like how quickly that could be ramped up. Obviously, there's going to be capacity issues there. But just on a nameplate sort of capacity, um, three things. There's a nameplate sort of capacity of what they can actually do um, if it's being maxed out um, and, you know, if they could get more. So I'm just saying theorizing an incremental, another BCF a day out of Qatar, another BCF a day Australia, everybody's pumping above their weight. You're giving the market signals to natural gas producers all over the world to, to produce more. But it's that what's the nameplate capacity now and and how, you know, the feasibility side, and I have my opinions on this, of can we can we add more floating storage and can we get more like it, or is this simply we're we're killing ourselves now? We're incrementally going to do all we can, and it's really going to take you know eighteen months of sort of getting this rejiggered to get to where we need to be. Yeah, so I think okay. Well, to answer your first question, nominal regas capacity in all of Europe, right? So that includes the UK, that includes um, non-EU countries, that that also includes Turkey, is two uh, hundred and fifty-two BCMA, which is about twenty-five BCF a day. Okay. 
But when you look at all of Europe, you have to basically break, I tend to break it into sort of three major regions. Um, the first is Iberia, which has about 60 BCMA of regas capacity. So that would be Portugal and Spain. But that's really an LNG island, if you consider it within the whole European context, right? There's a tiny little pipeline that goes to France. Um, but if you're really trying to wean yourself off of Russian gas, you know, Iberian capacity isn't going to get you there because they don't consume any anyways. And there's no way to get that extra capacity to the countries that do consume Russian gas any anywhere in the near term. Although they speaking of policy U-turns, uh, France and Spain are now considering expanding that pipeline capacity between their two. I was going to say, about, okay. about every pipeline that can be expanded is that's that's in the works at the yes. moment. <laughs> so that's one. So that's Iberia. Um, two, you have Italy and Turkey, um, both of which get a substantial portion of their total gas supply from Russia. Um, and that's another 60 BCMA or about 6 BCF a day. Um, and then finally, the sort of the big piece that all eyes are on right now is Northwest Europe. So that would include the UK, Belgium, the Netherlands, Poland. I include the Baltics in that and Northwest uh, France. Um, and that is about 104 BCMA. So it's clearly the largest capacity in Europe from a regas perspective. Um, and so, uh, again, for your listeners, about 10 BCF a day of regas capacity in Northwest Europe, where a lot of the gas that comes in from Russia is going. And, and Germany in particular um, is, a, is a big country that has a lot of Russian gas uh, supply and gas demand and not a single regas terminal, which, again, speaking of policy U-turns, I don't think there's been any more dramatic change in policy than the Germany over the past month, uh, particularly over energy policy, but also over obviously military policy and funding of NATO. But um, those, uh, can but, we just pause for one second right there? So the, this sure. is where, so when you're looking at that map, um, and I love the mm -hmm. way you're bucking these regions because I, I look at the maps of the get the terminals and the pipelines, and it's it's that those pipelines are always they're there, right? So it's like if, so from that perspective, we know we only have a little bit of pipeline capacity to so you could yeah you could import more into spain but the ability to move it out you know through up would be difficult okay. you do have the pipelines though in place in you know in britain and other parts of europe so the ability for those to be uh reverse reversing flows expanding flows building connectors that is theoretically capable i mean i know it might not be on the forefront of everybody's uh certain people are thinking about that but from a technical capacity if you have they have the pipe. Is that being, are people thinking about that in terms of, okay, you know, bring as much LNG as possible in the places we can and build out this mm -hmm. near term, this infrastructure as quickly as possible. And then we sort of, I wouldn't say repurpose the pipelines, but I, flows need to probably maneuver around, but they do have a lot of pipe in the ground. Correct. So let's take the UK and the Bacton and Air Connector for a first example. So um, the UK represents a, a big bulk of Northwest Europe's regas capacity. And a lot of that was actually built by Qatar because uh, the UK gets a lot of its LNG supply from Qatar. Um, but there is one pipeline that goes from uh, from the UK into the EU, into the Belgium, uh, I think it's called Bella. Uh, can't remember the exact term, but basically the Belgian gas system region. Um, and that can take more gas capacity. As I looked at the numbers recently, and to my surprise, I actually found that that pipeline flows from the UK to continental Europe were actually running really at really low rates. So I think that, you know, theoretically, you could import a lot more LNG into the UK and send it into Europe. A uh, bit of a head scratcher to me as to why that's not happening now, but maybe that's a conversation for a future podcast. Um, but, uh, you know, from a, so that's from a short term perspective, uh, from like a short to medium term perspective, you've probably heard a lot about FSRUs being deployed as a sort of near term stop gap uh, to expand regas capacity. Now, FSRU stands Let's for break up. Yeah, floating storage regas units. And basically those are LNG carriers um, that you put some pots and pans on them and, and you retool them. I, either you retool an old uh, LNG carrier to regasify LNG um, or you build a new FSRU companies like Accelerate do that. Um, so basically ships that can uh, both ship and regasify LNG into a system. I can only imagine um, their phone calls going. They're just, they're like, their business is going <laughs> through the roof. This is like, yeah. 
And they're also, oh. I think Accelerate is actually going through an IPO pro- uh, process right now. So I'm going to need to get them on the that. podcast, but okay. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. FSR, F- um, FSRUs are, in theory, we could deploy them. Correct. And those actually are pretty straightforward to install. Um, basically, you need to build a jetty and you need to locate the FSRU, obviously, uh, close to other pipeline infrastructure, right? You don't want to just sort of send it into nothing. Um, so the location matters. Um, but for all intents and purposes, you can technically deploy an FSRU under the absolute best conditions. I think the record has been 18 months um, from the start of proposal to actually hooking it up to the term- uh, as a terminal and regasifying LNG. And that actually happened in Turkey. Um, I looked at the data recently and it appears there's a upwards of 40 total FSRUs currently existing and in the order book. A lot of those are already tied up as terminals around the world, right? So, And you have quite a few of those in Europe or in Africa, right? You do have some in Africa. uh, Well, more Middle East, uh, MENA region. Um, But a lot of them actually are in Europe, right? So um, one of them is in Croatia, the Kirk uh, terminal that recently started up. and as also the purpose of that was, you know, the Balkans wanted to have a resource base that was alternative to Russia. And that was, you know, prior to the current crisis. Um, and then you also have, I think everyone has probably heard of the very aptly named FSRU Independence, the Klapida Terminal in Lithuania, um, which is enabling the Baltics to basically, you know, completely uh, reduce their reliance on Russian imported gas. And prior to the FSRU independence, they were 100% reliant on Russia as a gas provider. So, and those are cold places where people need to heat their homes. So that's not a great place to be. Um, So essentially, uh, you know, a lot of countries are looking to have these sort of emergency measures. Let's hook up an FSRU really quickly. And, and, And I think that can probably happen. And I'm sure the EU will act in an appropriate manner to accelerate the um, regulatory process to get those projects hooked up. Do those, um, um, do the, are they, can you fiddle with the, like the, the technical capacity on those? Are those something that you can, um, if they're not being, I, I, I'm, I'm sure they weren't being maxed out um, prior to the crate prior, probably six months ago, they weren't necessarily being maxed out, especially when the demand is low in the summer or something. But can you fiddle with the maxing out? Is there a way to push it? Or is it sort of this is the nameplate capacity, this is what it can do. And we know what that is. So we can we can run these back of the envelope numbers really quick and say, okay, there's 40 out there. This is what's going to happen. You know, I'm not sure so much on the technical side for FSRUs. Um, I will say that in looking at the numbers for, let's say, FSRU independence, um, it is actually running at about half utilization based on the okay. data That's that I, I can secure. see yeah. from NSOG. Um, but I'm sure they can lift those numbers. Um, for context, gate LNG. So everyone talks about TTF. Um, that's the Dutch hub and the Dutch terminal is the gate LNG terminal. And that project, that terminal has basically been operating at 100% utilization, um, even prior to the crisis that was at a very high utilization rate, but especially after the crisis, um, it's been basically at 100%. Um, to the extent where actually you can see a discount in the, the delivered LNG price, according to Platts and to Europe, versus TTF. And that is a signal that there's probably some uh, bottlenecks in regas capacity. Okay. I figure that. Right. So, um, so if you look at the absolute numbers, you'd say like, oh, well, the utilization rate is about 85%. They can probably juice that a little bit. Um, And that's probably true. But there's also those, you know, pesky uh, commercial and technical constraints that sometimes make looking at utilization rates in uh, isolation uh, misleading. So, I do think that uh, sort of bringing it all together, there are liquefaction uh, bottlenecks in the sense that every uh, plant in the world is producing as much LNG as it possibly can. Um, You've had a lot of plant outages, which going back to our previous conversation, um, the part of the run-up in prices was not just uh, demand growth, but was also supply outages. Places like Norway has not been operating. They had a explosion there that was has put that plant out of operation. Um, a lot of legacy plants have had declining feed gas stocks. Um, so, you know, right now, total liquefaction capacity on a nameplate basis 
is operating at about 91% utilization across the entire world. And that's essentially 100% effective capacity. Um, so uh, as you know, Europe is taking as much as LNG as they can possibly get their hands on. And in the case of uh, the market right now, that's a zero sum game, which means that they're going to have to divert LNG away from Asia, which we're already seeing in the March numbers. Asian LNG demand has decreased in uh, corresponding to an increase in LNG imports from Europe. And actually, I will amend my statement. LNG demand is not decreasing, decreasing, but LNG trade is, right? There's a lot of unmet demand across the world at these prices. And there was last year, too. So the prices is a great point, and I do want to I do want to conclude this because we're breaking this into two. But I think that's a, a very good point that I would like to raise. The pricing is huge, right? Is that we know you've explained demand really well of this or the nameplate we have. Here's our capacity. We're running at ninety one percent. If you're not buying this in in Asia, so I mean, yes, for certain countries have this locked in. We have locked in volumes and everything. But if you're not buy, buying it, and I think there have been other podcasts and folks talking about this. I think the UN climate change folks are coming out with some stuff this week is that coal use is going to was quite high over the course of 21, 21, I believe will be um, through the roof in 2022. Um, and it's a reality is that it's just it's stable, right? We we dig it out of the ground, we set it, we can sit it above the ground, we wrote, put it on train cars, and we burn it and we get power. And so I think coal use is going to probably accelerate one just the ability to have it. So where you have coal production um, and the ability to produce it and consume it, I think we're going to see that rise throughout Asia. Um, and Russia does have a lot of coal and Russia does actually still continue to export coal to Europe. Um, so Russia will, those volumes are going to move around. You're going to get a lot of those in Asia. And I think that's going to go up. So the points, that you put, these pinch points of where folks are not getting enough um, or have enough uh, on the gas side um, is going to be I think to some extent filled with filled with coal. The other thing I would say on Europe is really important is that it's just the prices to think about inflation. And, and I really do think, um, you know, folks don't think we're headlong into a recession. Um, it, it, it didn't, we were sort of there well before the war in Ukraine. And this is the sort of the catalyst, I think, for Europe uh, from a, a severe inflationary standpoint of looking at inflation north of 7%. And, and these prices, I mean, when you're hearing these stories on BBC of what the, these consumers are paying for to heat their homes for electricity. Um, I was listening to a couple BBC podcasts on um, that they do their real story and they dive into a topic and and I was I was shocked. Even the announcers have changed their tone and rhetoric on energy versus climate and everything. And I think they were talking about reducing their use and consumption of natural gas. Um, and they said, well, one of the panelists had said, well, if somebody if everybody in Europe would just reduce their thermostat by one degree, you know, we could reduce this. And and the the, the person on the podcast who's doing it. She was like, well, I think people have already, I mean, they literally have to because the prices are so high that they're already turning down the thermostats. And I've mentioned this before, and I think I mentioned it to you, is that the European Central Bank was talking about, you know, a lot of consumers in Europe, um, we're talking in the OECD and the developed world, not adequately heating their homes. This is well prior to Russia invading Ukraine, was not adequately heating their homes at the end of last year, even, and the beginning of this year, because prices were so high. And these are really serious of these these energy prices. And now it's inflation across the board that, again, prior to the war in Ukraine, exacerbated by food and um, and energy and everything and, and metals of and just cross-border and supply chain bottlenecks. But the having inflation and really high energy costs costs and not access to, you know, adequate energy supplies. And I think the short term, you know, disconnects and bottlenecks are, are really serious. I think the ability, as you've pointed out, the the technical capacity of figuring this out fast and having folks that adapt to this and seeing where European policy is very adaptive. And again, I'm not criticizing or ridiculing folks on the on the policy front, but you're gonna be quick and adaptive. And I do think the US, the administration needs to take a note when European countries are like um, when the UK and Boris Johnson are saying, hey, we're going to rethink leasing and fracking in the in the United Kingdom. When you hear them saying that this is a this is game changing. I mean, these countries do have natural gas and whether they they I know they hate it. I know they hate fossil fuels and they don't want it and they want to get off of it. But you know, producing it at home and having that energy security, being to control how they produce it, being to control the methane emissions from it, being to like having a humane, humane molecule, you know, like all aspects of it, they could control the environmental footprint of it so much more. And the fact that you're actually, I I mean, I think it's a long way off from, from, from the UK actually fracking. And, you know, we know Germany has it, we know 
France has the Paris Basin. I mean, the ability to actually produce it, it's actually there. It, it's a long way off, but um, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of American uh, frackers and, and companies over here that would love to love to help them out and do it. But it's something just serious to think about. And just the fact that it was even uttered by Boris Johnson and talked about is a that's a serious shift um, in just the world, the reality of that. You know, we do have to we had people and, and heating just for heating, cooking. And I mean, hearing in Ukraine of, uh, you know, literally using fires to melt snow to get water. I mean, that, that's been the life of, of, you know, thousands of people who haven't had, haven't had electricity or, or any, any energy for, for quite some time. So this is going to, I feel like we're going to transition a bit, um, as people tire of the news a little bit, um, which is going to suck, um, cause they need to pay attention to what's going on in Ukraine. But as the war sort of lingers on and we come into the summer months and the weather gets better, you know, I, I, I hope that people are still paying attention and understanding that when the winter comes, this is all going to be very, very present again. Um, and so I imagine to your point of all you're saying on the, on these regulation change and these shifts, uh, over the course of the summer, it's going to, it is going to be tricky because I don't think that, um, we have France has an election coming up. I don't think we have a, a complete, you know, yes, we're all in on energy security. I think it's and the way they're seeing renewables and climate, it's still all this is pulling together and it's going to be messy in terms of how this plays out, both from a near and sort of medium term perspective. Um, and and people do vote that way and people are going to vote on you know, the cost of living and things like that. So um, I, you're more than welcome. I, I think we've taken a lot of time from list, listeners. You've been in a fantastic guest. And I know you probably have a couple comments from that, which I'm happy to hear um, before we close up. Yeah, I guess I'll just close with, uh, you know, two thoughts um, on what you just mentioned. Uh, one, you're, you know, turning down the thermostat, I think is yet another example of the magical can openers. Um, and that, you know, again, reality bites and, um we have to face what what is currently happening. Um, and two, your points about coal. I will share one fun fact. Even prior to the Ukraine crisis, um, we saw coal prices in Europe that were heat rate adjusted and then carbon price adjusted, right? So you, you've seen carbon prices in Europe hit all-time highs. Um, and so when you include that in what the cost is to burn coal in the power stack, you actually saw coal was more expensive than burning oil in Europe and power at certain points. Um, so it's just, everything is sort of topsy-turvy in the markets today. And um, I think we're in sort of the early innings on, on what all the implications are. And I think if I were to sort of summarize it all, everything we've talked about today uh, tells me that the market is not saying it needs more LNG capacity. It is screaming that it needs more LNG capacity. And I think projects like ours are, you know, you know, prepared and ready to to do so. And um, I think this is going to be a really interesting few years to come. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I think that, um, well, I don't necessarily, I, I don't think we're going to see these prices. I do think the market's going to respond. I think that, like I said years ago, I am, you know, I was saying it all last year on the podcast, I am long net gas all day long um, in terms of what the global the fundamentals of global demand and the global energy needs are just are going to need it. Prices are not going to are not sustainable at these levels and they'll come down and the market will respond yeah. to it. Um, and that, I have a lot of confidence in that. Um, I, I just think that it's it's all these these near term issues. Um, but with that, you've truly been an awesome guest. I really appreciate your willing to uh, interrupt your your willingness to uh, push back um, and and argue a bit. And I love that we don't fully agree on the China thing, which is totally fine because I I think that's a benefit to to listeners and folks. So um, Renee, it's been a total pleasure. Tell Sharif um, that he is coming on the podcast, whether he likes it or not. Um, <laughs> he does a lot of them, so we'll get a di very different perspective from him. But uh, Renee, you've been awesome. You're wealth knowledge and um, really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Trisha. It's been such a pleasure. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Thanks. guys. Bye-bye.